In the dark world of true crime, there exists a library of cases that involve one of the most difficult crimes to comprehend, and that is the crime of a parent harming their own child. According to the FBI, 2.5% of all homicides in the United States involve parents who have killed their children. When pressed for answers, the reasons given are typically selfish, particularly in the cases of maternal filicide, or in other words, a mother murdering her child, believing for some reason that death is in the child's best interest, particularly when that mother is suicidal and doesn't wish for her child to grow up motherless. As hard as that is to believe, it is in part a key to understanding the case we're going to cover in this episode. It's the story of a mother inexplicably vanishing with her young son, and a father's 13-year search for answers along a trail of shattered lives and baffled investigators. For this story, we travel to Aurora, Illinois, a relaxed suburb located 40 miles outside of Chicago, just far enough away from the hustle and bustle of the Windy City. It's not the place you would expect a mysterious event to occur that would garner national attention. Yet it was here, in the early hours of Wednesday, May 11th of 2011, that married couple James and Amy Pitson dropped their six-year-old son Timothy off at his school, Greenman Elementary, located in West Aurora. Leaving Timothy with his kindergarten teacher at 7.45 a.m., and then a few minutes later, dropping his wife Amy off at her job as her workplace was only a couple blocks away from Timothy's school. Then James would drive to his job, located in Bensonville. In every sense, this was an ordinary day. A day that echoed its regular routines. In fact, the only expected deviation was that Timothy only had a half day of school that day so they would be picking him up early. At 10.30 a.m., James Pitson returned to Greenman Elementary to do just that, pick up his son and then Amy before heading home. And that is when this ordinary day in Aurora took a mysterious turn. Timothy's teacher, Cheryl Broach, informed James that his wife Amy had already returned to the school and removed Timothy from class less than an hour after they had dropped him off. According to Cheryl, Amy told her that Timothy had to leave school right away due to a, quote, family emergency. Unaware of any emergency, James attempted to contact Amy on her cell phone, but she wouldn't answer. Suspecting that Amy may have taken Timothy home, James returned home, but his wife and son weren't there and Amy's car was gone. Without an explanation for her actions, James was unsuspecting that the details of their absence would soon become national news and the plot of every parent's worst nightmare. Now before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's take a few steps back in this story. 
and get some additional context into this family dynamic in James and Amy's relationship. Starting with Amy. Amy Pitson was born Amy Joan Marie Fry on May 3rd of 1968 to Lee and Alana Fry in Rockford, Illinois. The Fries raised Amy and her siblings, Sister Kara and Brother Brian in Libertyville, a town located an hour north of Chicago. After she graduated from Iowa State University, Amy began working in Ames, Iowa, with plans to move back to Illinois after her parents' divorce in 2002. At that same time, James Pitson was working at a water treatment business also in Ames, and was invited by a friend to attend a nearby going-away party being thrown by mutual friends. And as it would turn out, that party was for Amy. After James and Amy had been introduced to each other, they hit it off, despite their differences. Amy being well-read and outgoing with a passion for travel, and James being a regular guy who enjoyed laid-back things, like watching the Blackhawks and hanging out with friends. They had different interests indeed, but with a lingering mutual attraction for one another. After Amy moved back to Illinois, James stayed in contact with her, and the two began a long-distance relationship, with James making the nearly six-hour drive from Ames to Illinois at least once a month to see her. It was in the early stages of this relationship that James would slowly learn some unsettling truths about Amy. As it turned out, despite her only being 34 years old when they met, Amy had already been married and divorced three times, which may have been the result of her lifelong battle with depression. Prior to their meeting, James learned that Amy had once attempted suicide by parking on a railroad crossing and then waiting for an oncoming train, only to drive off the tracks in time to barely escape a fatal collision. After that suicide attempt, Amy voluntarily checked herself into a psychiatric ward where she would remain hospitalized for a week, checking herself out after being prescribed medication and receiving counseling. But her thoughts of self-harm would return unexpectedly. It was not long into their relationship that Amy was driving home from a job interview when she inexplicably pulled off to the side of the road and sat on the edge of a steep embankment. As she sat there, she swallowed a handful of sleeping pills and then waited for those drugs to take hold of her. And when they did, she tumbled over 30 feet down the jagged face of the embankment, leading to a fracture in her spine and another hospitalization. According to James, when he finally spoke with her, she indicated she was back on her medications and that without them, she was feeling hopeless and overcome with anxiety, leading to what was now considered a second suicide attempt. Now, in spite of the setback with Amy's mental health, their relationship endured, blossoming into the couple getting married in a small outdoor ceremony in May of 2004. At the time of their wedding, Amy was four months pregnant with what the couple considered to be their miracle baby. You see, James had long assumed that his battle with Hodgkin's lymphoma in his 20s had left him sterile, and Amy was not planning on having any children mostly due to her fears of passing on her mental health issues to any children she did have. But any fear or apprehension Amy had seemed to vanish with Timothy's birth on October 18th of 2004. But even though there was a light of joy that the birth of Timothy brought to the newlyweds, there were dark storm clouds closing in, 
on this newly formed family. The young family of three settled in Aurora and began to go through what most would describe as typical married couple arguments. Money was usually at the top of that list. But then the issues spread into other areas. And in 2008, James discovered texts between Amy and one of her ex-husbands. Reading through those messages, James had learned that Amy had met up with this ex several times, and the two had made plans to get together on a weekend that James would be out of town. The discovery led to James giving his wife an ultimatum. Choose him or her ex, but if she chose the latter, he would fight for full custody of their son, and he would use her hospitalizations and mental health issues against her. And if he found any other text between them, he would file for divorce. It was that threat that would permanently change their relationship and possibly be the catalyst for what was yet to come. Amy agreed to stop all communication with her ex, and she would later confide in her sister Kara that the thought of losing Timothy terrified her. But even with Amy agreeing to James' terms, the other issues and points of contention between the two reached a boiling point at the end of April 2011, when Amy went to the Bahamas with one of her best friends. Prior to that trip, the couple had what would be described later as a blow-up argument, the details of which were around her choice to travel with a friend and not her family to celebrate her upcoming birthday. When Amy returned from that trip, James would say that it was as though the argument never happened. But just a week later, Amy would remove Timothy from school, an action that would at first seem harmless, but would instead kick off a decade-long mystery full of dark twists and turns, part of which would end in the unlikeliest of places. In the immediate aftermath of Amy and Timothy's disappearance, while James searched his home for clues, he discovered that Amy had not been taking her depression medications Wellbutrin and Lexapro, something he suspected when she complained of dizziness several days prior, a common side effect when someone stops taking those medications abruptly. James reached out to Amy's sister, Kara, to see if she had heard from Amy, but she hadn't. She tried to alleviate James' concerns, though, by telling him that Amy probably needed time to cool off, likely due to the resentment she felt as a result of the fight they had prior to her Bahamas trip. Resentment that she hid from James when she returned. Kara next told James to give it a day before doing anything that could make the situation worse. And James reluctantly agreed. He even sent a toned-down message to Amy saying he wasn't mad and that he just wanted to know what was going on. But again, Amy didn't reply. After a full day had passed, a now fed-up James reported both Amy and Timothy as missing to the Aurora Police Department. But because Amy and Timothy were together, and 24 hours hadn't quite passed, James was told to wait at least another 24 hours before filing. 
Police would finally follow up with him on Friday the 13th. Accepting his missing persons report, along with a photograph of Timothy and Amy for investigators to add to the case file. Then the next day, Saturday, May 14th, two men in suits visited James at his home and told him they had information regarding Amy. But it wasn't the news he was expecting to hear. The detectives informed James that they had just found Amy deceased in a motel room in Rockford, Illinois, about an hour away from Aurora. And worse yet, Timothy was still missing, and they had no idea where he might be. It was explained to James that Amy had been discovered in her motel room by a housekeeper. A housekeeper who had gone in to clean, but the door was locked from the inside by the chain. But the housekeeper was able to get enough of a look into the room to see a lot of blood in Amy's body and immediately contacted police. Investigators on the scene ruled Amy's cause of death an apparent suicide. Discovering a box cutter she used to kill herself and a suicide note. In the note, she apologized to whoever found her and for the mess she left behind. Police have only paraphrased Amy's suicide note publicly, but at least part of the note was released, and the following is a word-for-word reading from a photograph of Amy's suicide note. While some people leave notes and some don't, I couldn't decide. So this is my version. Tim is somewhere safe with people who love him and who will take care of him. You will never find him. To whomever finds me, sorry about the mess. Amy. Now, according to authorities, two more letters arrived in the mail, both from Amy, one to her mother and the other to her friend that she went to the Bahamas with. The letters had been mailed from Amy approximately on the 13th. Those letters basically echoed her suicide note. In the letter to her mom, Amy indicated Timothy would be well cared for and that there was nothing anyone could have done to change her mind. With Timothy still missing, investigators did a lot of legwork to retrace Amy's movements from the time she removed him from school on the 11th to the 14th when her body was found in that motel just an hour from home. Leveraging security camera footage, bank records, and cell phone data, Investigators were able to recreate Amy and Timothy's movements and piece together a working timeline of events that occurred during the three days they had been missing. Investigators first learned that shortly after James dropped Amy off at work on the 11th, she complained of not feeling well to her boss and left in her truck, a 2004 Blue Ford Expedition that she had actually left parked there the day before. Shortly afterwards, security cameras captured Amy entering Timothy's school at 8.15 a.m. and then leaving hand-in-hand with him 20 minutes later. At 10 a.m., she stopped at an auto repair shop 30 miles away in LaGrange, Illinois, for repairs she probably wanted done before all of the driving she planned on doing. Amy was told the repairs would take a few hours. So rather than sit and wait 
Amy asked the mechanic if he would drop them off at the nearby Brookfield Zoo, which the mechanic agreed to do. At approximately 3 p.m., with her truck now fixed, Amy and Timothy drove north to Gurney, Illinois, approximately 45 miles away. Amy then checked them into the Key Lime Cove Water Resort and spent the night there, all while ignoring texts and calls from James and voicemails from her mother and sister. The next morning, Thursday, May 12th, right around the time James was attempting to report them missing, Amy and Timothy were on the interstate driving towards Wisconsin. At 11.30 a.m., they stopped at a store and Amy purchased clothes and some toys for Timothy. At 2.20 p.m., Amy stopped at a gas station in Johnson Creek, Wisconsin. And later that night, they checked into a hotel at the Kalahari Water Park in Wisconsin Dells, 160 miles away from Aurora. At 10 a.m. the next day, Friday the 13th, video surveillance captured Amy and Timothy checking out of the Kalahari Hotel. It was also around that same time that detectives in Aurora were accepting James' missing persons report. At 12 p.m., Amy made several calls to family. One of those calls was to James' brother, Charles. According to Charles, he could hear Timothy in the background saying he was hungry. Knowing that James had reported her and Timothy missing, Charles suggested Amy and Timothy come to Waterloo where he lived. Charles says that Amy responded that she was fine and that she just needed a break. And perhaps ominously, based on what we now know, Amy reassured him that she wasn't going to hurt herself or Timothy. But she also reportedly told Charles, Timothy was hers and she could do whatever she wanted with him. It is known that right after that call ended, Amy shut off her cell phone. Somewhere near Sterling, Illinois, a small manufacturing and steel town surrounded by farmland 80 miles west of Aurora. Why she went there is a mystery to her family, but investigators reviewing her toll pass history saw that she had made two trips to that area months before. And no one can say for certain what happened over the next six or seven hours after she shut off her phone. But it's within that block of time that something happened to Timothy. Because at 7.25 p.m., Amy was once again captured on security camera. This time, she was alone entering a family dollar store in Winnebago, Illinois, about 50 miles away from Sterling. While there, she purchased a pen, a notebook, and envelopes, items she likely used to write her suicide note and the letters to her mom and best friend. At around 8 p.m., Amy was seen entering a Sullivan food store. Again, she was spotted alone. Records would show that 11.15 p.m., Amy checked herself into the Rockford Motel, eight miles from Winnebago. Then the following day, at 12.30 p.m., the housekeeper would see Amy's body through the gap in between the door and security chain. In the motel room, 
Detectives would find the box cutter Amy used to cut her wrists and neck and her suicide note. They also found a partially used bottle of triaminic cold medicine for kids and Timothy's child identification card. But no other signs of Timothy were found. So half of the mystery was solved at this point. Amy Pitson, although dead, was no longer missing. But the other half of this investigation was just beginning. With a high sense of urgency to find a missing six-year-old boy who could literally be anywhere. If there was a bright spot to be found, it was in the fact the clothes and toys that Amy purchased for Timothy were not in the motel room or in her truck, possibly a sign that part of Amy's note was true. The national media jumped on the story, of course, providing a platform for James to tell his side to a wider audience and also increase public awareness to find Timothy. Law enforcement, the FBI, and U.S. Marshals Service conducted ground searches along the I-88 and I-39 corridors near Sterling, Illinois. That's where they found Amy's cell phone on the road, but they were unable to pull anything significant off of it. Authorities then peppered the entire route of Amy and Timothy's journey with flyers, hoping for leads or new clues to turn up. But nothing ever did. Forensics performed on the interior of Amy's truck did uncover the first potential evidence that suggested Amy had harmed Timothy. A significant amount of blood in the back seat that was a DNA match to Timothy. However, it was also learned from family that not long before he disappeared, Timothy had had a severe nosebleed while traveling in the back of the truck. This could not be proven or disproven. The FBI even sampled soil off the tires on Amy's truck to narrow down areas to search for clues, but didn't find anything in those specific areas. Over the years, sightings of Timothy were looked into, all of which turned out to be false. In 2019, a young man was found wandering the streets of Newport, Kentucky, claiming to be Timothy Pitson. As police looked into his claim, they identified him as Brian Reaney, a 23-year-old man with a history of psychiatric issues. He would be sentenced to two years in prison for perpetuating the hoax and aggravated ID theft. James Pitson eventually moved away from Aurora. He wanted to stay there, hoping there would be a day Timothy would come walking through the front doors of his childhood home, older but alive. According to an interview James gave, as time passed, he had problems separating good memories of Timothy from what Amy had done, leaving in secret and ending her life, and forever robbing him of watching Timothy grow into an adult, which he would be today. To say what she did was selfish would be an understatement. Through it all, James still believes that Timothy is alive. And despite what he thinks or feels about Amy, to this day, he doesn't believe she would ever harm him. Most of Amy's friends and family agree that Amy, despite all of her faults and issues, would never hurt her son. So for James Pitson's sake, 
We hope that Amy was telling the truth about giving Timothy to someone who would love and care for him, and that it means he is still alive out there. And James, just know that we believe Amy was wrong when she wrote that you'll never find him. Because someday, you will. Hey everybody, lately it's been a struggle for me to create content for this podcast, just with everything I have to get to in a single day. Life and work create challenges that can throw us all off balance. And because of that, I'm always looking for products that can provide a cognitive edge to keep my mind in that free flow state where focus and energy over an extended period of time is necessary. Well, recently I started using a product called Magic Mind. It's a small shot of natural nootropics and adaptogens that reduce stress and improve physical and mental endurance while enhancing mental clarity and increasing your body's resistance to stress. I drink a shot of it in the morning, and the results last an entire day, without the jittery or anxious side effects of caffeine. So if you want to give this life hack a try, just go to www.magicmind.com disappeared, and you can get 40% off your subscription price for the next 10 days with my code disappeared two zero. That's D-I-S-A-P-P-E-A-R-E-D, the number two, the number zero. That code is also good for 20% off of a one-time purchase, and they offer a money-back guarantee. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain just by trying it.